0: Uh, Well, good morning, welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. If this is your first Sunday here, my name is Dustin, and I get to be the pastor here. Uh, We're going through the Gospel of John this morning, and we're in John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 31, Uh, just a little bit of prep. This is uh, Jesus' response uh, to the accusation in verse 518, which we talked about last week, where people were uh, ready to kill Jesus because he was claiming equality with God. And as we know from John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, So Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he is going to have to give a defense of himself of sorts. Uh, But you'll read along with me. We're going to start in verse 31, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Uh, Friend, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. This is John chapter 5. We'll start in verse 31 in the middle of Jesus' speech. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me and that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them You have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses in the Old Testament, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? And keep that Bible open in front of you, because what the Word has to say is way more important than anything I've got to say. Uh, I don't know if you have any sort of a favorite kind of TV show, but have you ever watched those legal shows, you know, about lawyers and stuff? Uh, there's got to be some lawyers or, you know, uh, clerks in the room. Uh, but, you know, we love lawyer shows, right? And uh, has anyone ever told you, you know, I'm sure somebody's said this to you at some point in your life if you're a 16-year-old boy in the room. You know, you like to argue, you should be a lawyer. And for some reason, that's never a compliment. Have ever noticed that? They don't mean that in a good, if anyone's ever told you that, that's like a Southerner saying, bless your heart, that was a backhanded compliment, right? Every mother thinks their 15-year-old son should be a lawyer, You know, you should be a lawyer, son. Poor moms, right? They act like they have to be like the defendants because their, you know, teenage sons inside can be so sharp. They're acting like a prosecutor, right? But, you know, unfortunately, poor dad, you know, when he watches this, you know, go along, he, you know, dad always thinks he's the judge, right, in this situation between mom and the son, right? But in reality, if you're a dad, you all know we're really what? We're really like the bailiff in the room, right? We're just kind of like observing silently. (laughs) And who's the judge? Have you ever watched Judge Judy? I love, there's a lot of great life advice in Judge Judy. I don't know if you've ever been sick and like watched Judge Judy, but there's a lot of life, there's even marriage advice, right? There's no doubt who's the real judge. It's Judy. Judy's the judge, right? And the bailiff does what? Nothing, except when he's supposed to agree with the judge, right? It's like, mom, what do you have to say, dad? And dad's like, I agree with her. <laughs> yes, do, do what your mother said, Yeah. Didn't think you were going to get such practical life advice today, did you? Well, the reason I'm bringing up all of this imagery, right, of lawyers and judges and prosecutors and defendants is because I need you to be thinking in sort of legal, lawyerly terms because that's what this whole passage is about. Uh, You see, Jesus is... Uh, accusers, uh, these Jewish leaders, these really, really religious people who would have had the Old Testament, their Bible, memorized, are accusing Jesus of something. And so Jesus is mounting his defense. All throughout this passage, Jesus is using that word testimony or bear witness. It's the word martyr in Greek. You may have heard of a martyr, somebody who bears a witness uh, to great cost to themselves. Well, Jesus is having to mount a defense of himself. Uh, but the amazing thing, of course, is is Jesus still in defense mode by the time the passage is over, or does he turn into the prosecutor? Uh, but before we get to that, I want to give you sort of a thought experiment. Keep that imagery of lawyers with prosecutors accusing people of things and defendants having to give an account of themselves. Keep that in mind, uh, because I want to give you a thought experiment. Um, just, I, this isn't a real a scenario, but in this thought experiment, ask yourself this. Uh, in the great trial in the great trial between God and man, who's on trial? Are we guilty? And does God and His justice prove us guilty? Or do we accuse God for being outdated and of being unjust? And does our justice accuse the God of another epoch? You see, I'm not the first one to ask that question. Several years ago, in his essay, God in the Dock, C.S. Lewis was thinking about this very question. In the great trial between God and man, who's the accuser? Who is the one presumed guilty? And who is the one bringing charges? Now, of course, C.S. Lewis was British, like Pastor Richard. And when he says God in the dock, he doesn't mean, you know, God sitting sort of next to a body of water. What he means is God in the docket, as in God on trial. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, The ancient man, old people from a long time ago, the ancient man approached God the way an accused person would approach their judge. But for the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. Man is the judge and God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and disease and poverty. Man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is the judge and God is in the dock. You see, that's all exactly what's happening in this passage. You see, in John 5, 18, if you look, uh, this is the beginning of the process of Jesus' ultimate trial, which ends up with his death on a cross in front of his mother, And in verse 518, we find out what is the mounting charge that's driving these religious leaders to prosecute Jesus, if you will. Look at verse 518. This sets the stage for our passage. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he supposedly breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. And so what we're seeing in this passage is man meeting Jesus is mounting his argument that Jesus cannot be who he says he is. And now Jesus is going to give us some reasons to believe that he is who he says he is. Now, of course, who is Jesus? Let me just sort of give you some Christian theology for just a second. John 1 1 in this book, which we've already read and preached on, the author of the Gospel of John, John was going to tell us that Jesus is both a man who is born, who nurses, who grows, who ends up becoming a teenager and becomes a man who has a job. Uh, he's a man whose heart stops beating when he dies. Jesus is a full, 100% human being. When John the Baptist dies, Jesus mourns his death by himself. He goes on a mountain and he sits on a desolate peak by himself to mourn the loss of his friends. No one shares his sorrow when John the Baptist dies. Uh, Later on in John, as we'll read in a few months, when Jesus's friend Lazarus dies, even though Jesus knew he was going to raise him back from the dead, Jesus still wept. Jesus is fully human. When you pierce his side, he bleeds. And when you crucify him, he dies. But amazingly, the great news Of the gospel is he's not just a man. You see, when this man, this human, was carrying his cross to Calvary, to the place he was going to die, you know what he says? Luke tells us on the way to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this man couldn't stay dead. He came back from the dead three days later. Bodily, spiritually, physically, in every sense of the term, he is back and he is alive. And he is reigning from the right hand of God, the Father. And he is making all things new, including you, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. He is fully God, and yet miraculously, he's fully man. Now, I know that's really, really crazy sounding if you're not a Christian. That may totally throw you for like a loop because you may think that the Bible is just all about sort of moral rules. I mean, isn't that sort of what we think of when we think of the Bible? Well, obviously, there are some weird stories, right? Um, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you'll know it reads, as one pastor said, uh, like the guest list on the Jerry Springer show, right? <laughs> There's some colorful things in the Bible, and when people say the Bible's boring, I have to laugh to myself because I'm like, you've never read it. I mean, it's a lot of things, but boring is not one of them. And if it's boring, you, you don't know what's going on. You know, it's like, it's like you're 11 and your parents are, are giggling among themselves. You're like, why are y'all so happy all the time? It's like, you'll find out later, son, right? <laughs> the Bible's colorful. It's fascinating. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to end up on because he's going to give us sort of three reasons He gives these religious leaders three reasons to believe. And when he's making his defense, right, he gives sort of three pieces of evidence, three martyrs, three testimonies, if you will, three reasons. And you can see them right here in their passage. They're pretty easy, right? The first one I want you to see is right there in verse 33. He says, you sent John. That's John the Baptist, not to be confused with John the author that wrote this book. So he says, well, there's John the Baptist You know, you can believe him, but then in verse 36 he says, but actually I've got a better testimony than John. Look at verse 36. The testimony, the proof, the evidence that I have is better than John because I have come to accomplish, in verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. And if you're the kind of person to sort of underline things in your Bible, you can underline John, and then you can underline that phrase right there, the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish. And then the last one that he gives is he goes on a fascinating discussion about what the Bible is. And uh, we'll get there in a minute, but um, as one pastor put it, friend, what if the Bible is not the end? What if it's a means to an end? But we'll get there in just a bit. So you can underline Scripture. That's sort of our three things I want you to grasp. All right, so let's dive right in. Look at verse 31, and we'll go through sort of verse by verse to make sure you understand what Jesus is exactly saying. So Jesus is going to give himself uh, an argument, and he's, going to, he's called to question, right, how are you going to actually prove that you're who you say you are? Who do you think you are? Well, in verse 31, he says, well, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And all Jesus is, Jesus is not saying, well, I'm lying if no one else believes in me. What he's just saying is, I'm just, if I'm making this up, of course it's not true but I'm not making this up. And so he's going to argue that there is somebody who's going to prove him true. Look at verse 32. So he says, there's another person, there is another who is going to bear witness to testify to bring evidence and I know that he will show that it's true. And the he right there is actually the Father. God. He's going to say God is going to reveal to you that I am telling you the truth. And he gives Three ways. He gives us John the Baptist, he gives us the works that Jesus is going to accomplish later in his life, and then he gives us the scriptures. So what do we do with that sentence about John? Look at verse 33. Jesus says, you sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Of course, as we talked about a few weeks ago, at this point in Jesus's story, uh, John has died. Uh, he He was beheaded. You can read about it in the other gospel accounts. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, if you really want to believe in me, well, he's talking to people who would have listened to John, who knew him, who sent an official delegation to figure out who he was. And he says, well, the guy that you trust, what did he say about me? John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he may increase. And in John, it also tells us that John the Baptist, when he looked at Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Now, you're asking, so how are we supposed to glean anything from John? I haven't met John the Baptist. Who cares what John the Baptist said? He was weird. He wore weird clothes and he ate weird food, right? You may be thinking like that. How, why would John the Baptist be helpful for you and I today? Well, I think what Jesus is doing by bringing up John the Baptist, is what he's accomplishing and talking about is he's saying, the guy that you should believe, the first step of faith is find somebody that you know loves God and see what the testimony of their life is. If you don't believe me, well, I know you believe John. And you recognize that John was a prophet and he spoke on behalf of God. And if you've ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, Um, If you've put your whole trust in him, if you've been made new, I can guarantee you there have been other Christians in your life who showed you the way, what it meant to believe in Jesus. So, if you're a Christian in the room, uh, this is an incredible challenge that what we would do with our lives will match our profession of faith. Uh, We have an incredible role to play in leading other people to Jesus. Um, you know, we are not called to fix people. Uh, we're not called to be their therapists, unless you are a therapist in which you are called to do that. But as uh, Martin Luther famously said "At Christian, what you and I are primarily called to do is we are like beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Uh, people are not our projects. Uh, people are desperate for hope and for truth. And in the next chapter, Jesus will say What? You think the purpose of the story was about manna falling from heaven? Don't you get it? I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the one that you're always hungering and thirsting for. And our job is just to lead people to Jesus and let Jesus handle the rest. Now, of course, if you don't believe in Jesus, uh, if you're anything like me before I became a Christian in college, you may be thinking, hey, I know a lot of Christians, and their testimony definitely doesn't match anything at all like what I understand Jesus to talk about. Anyone ever felt like that or anybody feel like that right now? The Christian testimony doesn't match anything that I believe about Jesus. But if if that's how you feel, I want you to sort of keep two things in mind. Uh, First, I'm very sorry that you don't know Christians, that their walk matches their talk. Uh, But try to keep these two things in mind. Um, uh, First is, um, if you handed a 10-year-old one of Bach's sonatas, the music, and let's say the 10-year-old was just starting to play piano, and you put Bach's sonata in front of them and said, play this. Do you think the 10-year-old could play it beautifully? No, right? I mean, they may be able to piece through some of it, but it's not going to sound great. It's not going to move you. Does that say anything about Bach? No. That just says it's a, a child is trying to figure this out. See, this this isn't an excuse for Christians not matching their walk with their talk, but you have to remember, friends, uh, Christians are not people who admit they have it all together. They're people who admit they don't have it together. They're beggars. They're trying to figure this out. They're trying to live by grace and not self-righteousness. We've got a, a lot of untangling to do. And we're people who know that God loves us not because we've earned it, not because we're better than people or smarter than people, but because we are desperate and God's love is our only hope. So, someone's inability to live out Jesus' words doesn't make Jesus' words wrong or invalid any more than a child trying to play Bach makes Bach not beautiful. Second thing I want you to realize is that if you don't think that people's testimony match what you think Jesus would want them to do, um, notice Jesus' argument. Look at verse 34. This is such an important, he mentions, he says, look, if you don't believe me, at least listen to John the Baptist, somebody's personal testimony that you believe. But then Jesus is very clear in verse 34, he says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. (laughs) You see, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, my truth does not depend on John. In fact, John depends on me, (laughs) See, my truth is not dependent on somebody figuring it out for you. I hope that helps you believe, but that's not what it's going to stand or fall upon. And the reason he goes on with that is he also compares himself to light, whereas John is just the lamp, right? Uh, Jesus does not depend on John's testimony. Listen to what he says right here. He's quoting from Psalm 132, and he says, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice a while in his light, but who is the true light? Well, John tells us that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. Uh, John is never called the light. Jesus is the light, and John is a lamp. You know, that, you know it's, like, it's like the Olympics. You know, you get the, the Olympic torch, right? And then everybody else gets a part of the light, but they're not the light itself. Or if you go to a candlelight service, right, that's why we light the Christ candle, and from the Christ candle, we all light our individual candles. See, Jesus doesn't depend on our testimonies. Our testimonies depend on Jesus. Jesus is the light. And so Jesus says, whether you listen or not to the people in your life, the people that you respect, ultimately, that's not what determines my authority. I am the light. This is why it's so important to grasp that, you know, the Bible's not just a book of moral rules. I mean, if you think the the purpose of the Bible is to make you a more moral person, um, you are sorely mistaken. The purpose of the Bible is so that you would see Jesus. You can spend your whole life reading the Bible. You can devote your life to the Bible. And if you don't know and see Jesus, you've missed it. You've missed it. You've missed everything, and that's exactly where Jesus is going to go, but not yet. There's one other argument in the middle before he talks about Scripture. The first argument is the personal testimony of the people in our lives, uh, John the Baptist, if you will. The second testimony that Jesus points to, right, is look at verse 36. He says, I've got a better argument than just people's testimonies. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 36 right there is so critical. Um, It's the hinge that the whole door of this passage swings on. And if you don't have this hinge, the door is going to remain closed. But if you get the hinge, uh, (laughs) eternal life's door is going to open wide to you. Because what is the great work that Jesus has come to accomplish? I mean, the Ten Commandments were instilled for over a thousand years by the time Jesus walked on the earth. Deuteronomy tells us to love God. The moral law was already written. The Code of Hammurabi predates the Old Testament in some ways. There were moral laws. So what has Jesus come to do? If Jesus is just a moral teacher to teach you to get cleaned up and earn your way to God, to make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad, um, Jesus has offered you nothing new. In fact, if Jesus has come to say, you've got to work your way up through your moral deeds, um, there's no way Jesus can say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you think you've got to work your way up to God, tell me that yoke is easy. Because if you think you can work your way up to God, you're not trying hard enough. You're, as, as one pastor put it, if you think you can work your way up to God, your moral standard's just too low. You can't even please your wife. How are you going to please the God of the universe? Just kidding. Your wife loves you. Just agree with her. What's the work that Jesus came to accomplish? Well, it's all throughout the Gospel of John. Um, If you want a cheat code, you can just search any time Jesus talks about his hour. Uh, uh, Several weeks ago, we looked at Jesus at the wedding in Cana. And all these people are rejoicing that there's going to be this wedding feast. And Mary, his mother, who nursed him, who raised him, comes up to Jesus and she says, there's no wine. And do you remember how Jesus responds? He says, woman, my hour has not yet come. You see, anytime Jesus talks about his hour, he's referring to the driving purpose of his life, his goal. And his goal, his end, is that he will be punished and pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities, and upon him would be the punishment that brings us peace. You see, Jesus is the ultimate Host of the great wedding feast, the renewal of all things. He's the ultimate temple where God and humanity meet. He's the ultimate bread come down to feed us. He is the ultimate way. He is the ultimate truth in the life. And he's also the ultimate sacrifice for sins. So if you try to sacrifice and earn your way to God, You are actually refusing the sacrifice. And that may be hard to hear, but that's exactly what Jesus is telling these people. He's saying, you seek glory from other people, glory for yourselves, and you are refusing the glory that comes from me. You search the scriptures, you try to earn your way to God, and yet you don't realize that they testify of me. (laughs) If you really knew the scriptures, you would see that they were always pointing to the revealing of Jesus the Messiah, fully God and fully man. You see, the works that Jesus has come to accomplish is nothing less than the renewal and salvation of his people and all of creation. It's not something you can earn. It's something that Jesus and Jesus alone can accomplish on your behalf. Now, there's a couple of ways I need you to think about that. Uh, if, it, you know, Jesus will say getting the gospel is like dropping a little bit of leaven in a bit of dough. It starts out small, but eventually by the time you bake it, it works its way through everything. The gospel is like a seed that grows into the concrete cracks of your heart, <laughs> and the roots are going to grow down deep, and they're going to break up the concrete of your heart, and in the place of a heart of concrete, there's going to be a beautiful tree of life growing in its place. You see, and it's going to work its way through the rest of your life. You see, because you're going to have to realize more and more that your identity, who you are to your core, is not what you've earned, not what you've inherited from your racial lines or your family lines. Who you are is a beloved child of God, and you didn't earn it. In Romans chapter 10, Paul's trying to explain this to people. And this is one of my favorite verses in all of the gospels it's in john 10 excuse me romans 10 and what john says is he says they are trying this is so beautiful he says trying to establish a righteousness of their own they did not seek to establish or realize god's righteousness and he's saying how can a person be made right with god if it's our good works then it's not by grace listen to what he says in romans 10 verse 6 He says, if our salvation, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of our good works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The definition of grace is we get something we don't earn. You do not deserve it. In the great trial between me and God, I am the guilty defendant. And God does not say, I'll put you on a payment plan. What God says is he says, I will take the punishment and I will give you grace and forgive you of everything. And if you come to know that, um, this is what it means to be born again, right? It's to see the grace of God in Christ, to realize that, you know, every religion apart from Jesus, every other religion is a very complicated way to clean yourself up for divinity. Christianity is the total opposite because it says, you're worse than you think. You can't clean yourself up. And yet you are already more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared imagine. And what that does to you, if you believe that, if you believe in Jesus, what it's going to do to you, of course, is it's going to humble you. It's going to humble you in ways you never wanted to be humbled. Because you're going to realize more and more as the leaven works its way through your life that your identity is something received, it's by grace that the difference between you and the worst sinner you can think of, the difference between you and the, the other person on the political aisle, the difference is really nothing. I'm as guilty as they are. I'm as guilty as they are. The only reason I know Jesus is because he loves me. Who am I to receive any grace? You see, grace humbles you in a profound way, and yet, amazingly, at the same time, it teaches you to value yourself and see others in a profoundly new way. It raises you literally to the heights of heaven and to the heights of eternity, and that's the trajectory of your life through faith in Jesus. You're not building your own righteousness. Instead, what's happening is the grace of Jesus is making you more and more in his image so that death is a door you burst right through. You'll be raised to heights in new ways. Uh, you won't self-loathe, you'll just love the Lord more. I mean, how do you stop thinking think about it? If, if I said, don't think about the orange in my hand, right? Don't picture an orange. Don't think about all those guilty things you did. Stop self-loathing. Don't think about the orange. How do you stop thinking about What are you thinking about? You're thinking about an orange. Are oranges are even in season right now? Don't think about it. The answer, of course, is how do you stop thinking about an orange? You think about an apple in this hand. The way you sort of stop self-loathing, right, is you start to see more and more God's grace and love for you. The goal of the gospel is not just to humble you, it's to lift you to new heights. You see, that's that's how we're growing. That's the way the roots are growing deep in us. See, this is the work that Jesus has come to accomplish. He's going to die the death you and I deserve he's going to throw open the doors of heaven and give us his righteousness through grace. Jesus gives one final argument. This is one I'm thinking about later today. He says, if you, don't, if you don't get the gospel, if you don't get what I'm doing, if you don't see what the Father has done, verse 38 says, it's because you don't have the word abiding in you. Because if you understand the word, you'll believe in Jesus. And look at verse 39. This is one of the more challenging things Jesus says. Remember when I said the Bible wasn't boring? This is one of those fascinating things that Jesus says. Verse 39. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So is Jesus saying the Bible isn't true? Is Jesus, we may say this, well, see, the Old Testament, that's all like myth and fake stuff, and we're not really supposed to believe it. See, Jesus says, Don't worry about the Bible, he just, just believe in me. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, Jesus will go on and he'll say, remember, he has that famous say it's down to the jot and tittle is the Word of God. His argument is he, you know how he would say it is, I believe in the word of God down to every crossing of the T and every dotting of the I. Jesus believes the Bible. He's not saying the Bible doesn't lead you to eternal life. What Jesus is saying is the Bible is a trustworthy map that leads you to Jesus. And if you spend your life staring at a map and you never go, where the treasure is, you've missed the point of the treasure map. He's talking to these religious leaders and saying, you spend all day studying the Bible, and if you don't see that they point to me, you've missed it. I wonder how many people here have been raised in the church, steeped in the scriptures, and maybe have missed knowing the grace of Jesus. You can do it. You can meet him right now. You don't got to clean yourself up. You don't have to work on it. You just have to see and believe in Jesus. It's grace. It's not effort. If it were effort, grace would no longer be grace. And if it were your effort, it wouldn't really humble you the way you need to be humbled. And it couldn't lift you to the heights that Jesus has for you. So, let me just finish up. Let's go back to that great thought experiment, right? In the great trial between God and man. You know, who's the defendant? Who's the accuser? You know, is God just too outdated? (laughs) Well, Jesus is going to say, far from it. I believe God's word down to every crossing of the T, dotting of the I, and it all points to me. And if you don't see that, you're missing the point. He says, I've given you the personal testimony of people that you trust. Are you going to listen to them? Why wouldn't you? But my testimony doesn't depend on other people's ability to obey me. You can study my works, study the resurrection, see what Jesus has come to do. Would God love you enough to die on your place? Jesus says he would because he did. And, of course, Jesus says, we don't do away with Scripture. Rather, we see Scripture's purpose fulfilled in Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the map. So if you want to study who Jesus is, the best place to start is the Bible and start praying and asking, how does this lead to Jesus? Friends, that's an invitation to let the love of God in. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for grace. We thank you that we don't have to earn our way to you. Father, we thank you that your word is trustworthy and that it leads us to your son. Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Have mercy on us. Jesus, thank you for going to Calvary so that we would never have to fear death. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.